and welcome to Unorthodoxy. I'm Duncan Rayburn and this is episode 4 in the series we've been doing on the book of Exodus. And I thought a good place to start would be with a thought on Moses' character. Moses has, in a certain sense, been made a victim of a number of things totally beyond his control. And so it's amazing to me that even early on in the story, he begins to reveal a profound tendency to take responsibility for the world around him. Initially, this may be something of a defense mechanism. He takes responsibility for the world, and only later does he start to really take responsibility for himself. Still, it's significant that although clearly victimized, he refuses to take on a posture of victimhood. He, he refuses to play the role of the victim. He finds and then insists that he has a part to play in this world of oppressors and oppressed. When an Egyptian abuses a Hebrew slave, he takes action as if it's his job to do so. When two Hebrews are seen in conflict, he acts again, although soon after this he runs away from the consequences of his actions. Nevertheless, soon after running away, when he finds himself the witness of a crime, he takes action again. When a group of young women are being taunted by a group of bad shepherds, Moses refuses to let the injustice continue. As if to show those bad shepherds how to do the job properly, he then becomes a shepherd himself. Moses' journey is a descent of sorts, but it's not a descent into passivity. Instead, it's a descent into greater responsibility. It's as if he, he goes deeper down into the, the world as in, in order to carry more of it, which I think is just amazing. At the beginning of Exodus 3, we find this very same Moses still in exile, in a state that Israel will find itself in for much of the rest of its story. Moses was a prince, but he effectively, although perhaps not entirely deliberately, gives up his position as royalty to take up a lowly position as a shepherd, an idea that will have Christians saying, hey, wait, wasn't there someone else who did that? Moses, who is out one day looking after a flock of sheep, sees something that is just plain weird, a bush burning with fire without being consumed. So Moses takes a step away from the beaten track to have a closer look. Both Ambrose of Milan and Gregory the Diologist see this stepping off the path as being highly significant. They regard this as being about how Moses has decided to step away from sin, so to speak, from the path of the world, to seek a connection with the light of truth. Another way of looking at this moment in the story is to see it as a suggestion that if we're going to allow for any kind of confrontation with the new and the truly good, we're going to need to be prepared to relinquish the familiar and the suboptimal. If we want to find God, for instance, it's not going to help to stick to the status quo of a culture obsessed with godlessness and pure instrumentality. If we want to find truth, we're going to need to figure out which lies we're going to need to stop believing. This is really difficult today in an age in which mere opinion is often taken to be the equivalent of truth. I think that's one of the problems with a lot of contemporary journalism, is that mere statements of opinion are taken as fact. The rabbis echo this patristic insistence upon turning away from worldly concerns by suggesting that Moses has to fully embrace his position as an outsider. He has to be one who is not on the usual road 
before he can connect with the divine. As the theory goes, God is the ultimate outsider, more like nothing than like anything else, and yet like nothing at all. And if God is truly alien, then it is only those who adopt and identify themselves as alien who will be capable of finding him. And those who are outsiders are going to be better equipped to speak to the alienated. The core insight we gain from this is that the outsider is the primary agent of redemption because he or she knows how to seek and find divinity apart from the various bland expectations and redundancies of the given world order. The fact that Moses is no longer a prince of Egypt implies something also quite profound. It's not possible to speak truth to power if you embody power or align yourself wholeheartedly with power. Moses' encounter with that burning-slash-not-burning bush deserves a fair amount of attention from anyone reading the story. Before we get to what happens next, to God's speech in a way, it's worth asking, what could such a sight even mean? Many people throughout history have had much to say about this, and we can't obviously cover all of it, but I think it's helpful to start with the obvious, um, the obvious being the concrete experience of encountering the sheer strangeness of pure contradiction. Finding a bush that both burns and doesn't is like, in a way, listening to music that you can't hear or seeing a picture that you can't see. I think it's a, the experience of the visionary that, that is like this. It's, it seems like pure nonsense, really, to even entertain the thought of it. And yet, the contradiction is there, right in front of Moses. And he accepts it. I'm going to come back to this idea later in terms of the distinction between knowing and understanding, which I think is quite important. Maybe another way to understand the phenomenology of this event is to regard it as being about encountering ambiguity and not just contradiction, because it's something that can't really be resolved. It's a sign of immense emotional and spiritual maturity when you're faced with something deeply ambiguous and you don't try to solve it, resolve it, or fix it. This is easier to say in, in theory, but immensely difficult to live out. When you're confronted with ambiguous loss, like having had all your friends emigrate while you're left behind, or having a parent present in body but not in mind, thanks to something like dementia, um, ambiguity is really painful in such circumstances. And I think that there are even more unbearable forms of ambiguity than these, like having a child go missing when you are left with no clue as to whether they are dead or alive, or well or not. Facing ambiguity requires immense courage, like the courage it took for Moses to actually face that very strange light. The bush burned, but was not consumed. By the way, just a, a side note, I know that there are theologians today who are really fond of glorifying ambiguity, and I, I don't think that's, that's necessarily very psychologically sensible. I, I think that um, we, can, we can dwell in tensions and dissonances for a certain time, but it's certainly not, not something to, to use as a measure for how existence should be lived. Another way of looking at this encounter with pure contradiction or perhaps pure ambiguity is to think of it as a mirror image of two separate orders of being. The fire might be the order of becoming, 
and the bush might be the order of being itself. Philosophers throughout history have tried to side with either being or becoming, um, but here in this in this scene, in a way, they are in perfect harmony. Here we have the perfect coincidence of change and permanence, or perhaps imminence and transcendence. One does not outweigh the other necessarily in in the experience of the truly human. The world is full of ways of thinking that have tried to resolve the tensions between being and becoming or transcendence and imminence as if as if one needs to be collapsed into the other and often this is done in a way that creates a kind of mental imbalance for example materialism does away with transcendence and thus suggests that becoming is all there is gnosticism sees transcendence and imminence as being at odds as being in a way divorced and Gnosticism doesn't actually allow for the bush to both burn and not to be consumed. It, it assumes that it has to be in a way um, the fire fire is working so, sort of separately from the bush in some way. Calvinism, I, in my view, conflates divine and imminent causality, which then tends to make the distinction between being and becoming a little bit illusory. The question being raised by the presence of both being and becoming in a way, if you stick with the symbol, is why not see these two things as being in a dance with each other rather? They are distinct, but they are interwoven. Transcendence shows up in the very imminence that it sustains, which I, you know, is an amazing thought. Imminence is our point of connection with transcendence, and everything is one, belonging to itself and to everything else. Everything then becomes both a mirror and a lens, reflecting reality and revealing it. The church fathers read this burning not burning bush in a number of ways. The ways that they interpret the symbol of the burning not burning bush vary a great deal, and, and so they need to be taken on their own terms, since conflating the results of these different interpretations will result in a kind of hermeneutical porridge that isn't necessarily going to taste very good. One interpretation is to see that the bush is Israel. It's burning in the torment of slavery, in the fires of hell, so to speak, and yet Israel has not been consumed. Life thrives despite the forces that want it destroyed. This, at least, is Menokius's idea. Another way of interpreting this burning bush uh, is to understand the bush as a bramble bush. It's thorny like the crown of thorns worn by Christ. The fire, if this image of the bush is adopted, is Christ. He enters into the same state of tormented being that all humanity endures in order to redeem it. He permits himself to be crowned with thorns to show that thorns don't have to get the better of the good. Caesarius of Arles takes the thorny bush as a symbol of human sin, as suggested by the thorns mentioned in Genesis 3, as well as seeing them as being symbolic of obstinacy, namely the, the unwillingness of people to change when encountering something divine or transcendent. Very importantly, against the view of, of some more recent theologians, this encounter with thorns doesn't change the nature of the divine. God is not somehow in, in uh, showing love and, and compassion towards those who are in torment. And, and even when God enters into the, that state of torment, he is not altered. Being doesn't become becoming simply because it is in contact with becoming. 
John of Damascus and Gregory of Nyssa see the bush as being a symbol of Mary, the mother of God. Divinity descends to meet the human, but does not consume the human. The divine and the human actually coexist because of the mercy of the divine. The human, after all, is sustained in being by the divine. And so the word is made manifest in pure human materiality. The senses are given a chance to perceive the divine at work. Remarkably, the mind, although completely enveloped in the world of becoming, can encounter the permanence of being and not be overcome. Moses' encounter with the, the burning, not burning bush foreshadows the later event of Moses' seeing God's back, which we will obviously get to. The fire, of course, is something that produces light. I've already hinted at this. And it's also significant that out of this fire, the voice of God is heard. Words should bring clarity as light does. In fact, you could say that this echoes the idea in Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light. This is a nice idea because it's a reminder that creation is always happening. And in fact, in the midst of the chaotic darkness of Egypt, a new kind of creation is going to take place. Augustine assumes, along with many other church fathers, that the one who ends up speaking to Moses is none other than Christ, the Word of God. In fact, the general trend of the early Christians was to assume that when God's voice is heard, it is the second person of the Trinity doing the talking. One lesson of Moses' encounter with this really strangely contradictory image is to notice that not everything in the world is there for us to fully comprehend or understand. It is a mistake of the intellectually arrogant to assume that the human mind is capable of understanding everything. Many scientists that I've read and met adopt the attitude that says that everything that science doesn't explain yet, that little word yet is worth noting, everything that science doesn't explain yet will be explained at some point. I think it's also equally arrogant to assume that rationality will be able to account for everything. In, f in the face of something that doesn't fit into your current paradigm, the ideal response is to argue for the obvious, which is, I cannot understand it, and yet there it is. If you were to encounter a miracle, you would naturally have to in some way prioritize your experience over the theory that says miracles don't happen. In any case, Knowing something is not the same as understanding it. I know many people, but I certainly do not understand all of them, and what I do understand of them is not enough to account for them. It's significant that the knowledge of good and evil suggested in Genesis 3 does not presume the understanding of good and evil. There is always a dimension to those things that remains mysterious. And when Adam knew his wife, it did not mean that he had fully understood her. Well, similarly, when the mystics talk about knowing God, it would really be a mistake to assume that they are promoting some kind of absolute understanding of God. Knowledge and understanding overlap to a significant degree, but they remain distinct. Well, Moses is about to encounter God's voice, and he is about to know what he cannot understand. And in this knowing, he will discover the first seeds of something like redemption. Even at some purely psychological or detached sort of theoretical level, 
The idea here is that often we are led towards goodness and wholeness and truth and light by what we cannot yet understand or may not ever be able to understand. But we can be certain that even in the face of mystery, clarity is on the way. In fact, it's Chesterton's argument in Orthodoxy, one that I, I really like, where he points out that it is by mystery that we understand things. We cannot know in any direct sense what our consciousness is. We can't even understand our own consciousness. And yet, it is by means of our consciousness that we understand the world or anything. When God speaks, he addresses Moses by name. And the idea here is that the source of all truth, the truest truth itself, is on a first name basis with the real. Echoing the first word of divine creativity, the first word is a word of welcome. But then there is a warning. God tells Moses not to come too close. And then he tells him to remove his sandals because the ground he is standing on is holy. Ambrose of Milan assumes that Moses' taking off his sandals is an analogy for removing the bonds of the world. This is kind of continuation of the idea that Moses need, needed to step off the beaten track, step away from the, the kind of uh, worldly way of living. Augustine actually echoes this idea by suggesting that shoes being leather, that is the skin of a dead animal, represent dead works. Moses needs, and all of us need, to stop living in death, in fact walking on death. Ambrose talks along these lines of freeing the soul from worldly concerns. At a more experiential level, removing shoes is what makes feet vulnerable. We all have tricks and defenses to help us to not be vulnerable. Because we need to be able to cope with the world, and that's a, that's a tricky thing to do. And so these are sometimes things that actually prevent us from coming into contact with reality. There is something in the dead animal skin image of the idea of sacrifice, which talks, among other things, of getting rid of the non-essential. I like looking at this removal of, of sandals in terms of the, the principle that walking with God or seeing the divine or the good or the true in, in daily life is often about making one small change at a time. Often it's easy to think of self-improvement or spiritual growth along the lines of some kind of impossible ideal that is ridiculously and ludicrously out of reach, when in reality it is more about figuring out a hierarchy of personal aspirations and values and then simply figuring out which one to put into practice next. It's, it's almost like taking the sort of ideal and then turning the volume down in order to figure out what is actually achievable. This is actually the basic principle behind Therese Lasso's so-called little way. If, for example, you want the world to be more peaceful and harmonious, it's not, you don't have to, you know, write a treatise on peace and harmony first and then try and implement it through some large-scale political action. Rather, first, just figure out how to treat the next person you meet in a respectful way that takes their concerns genuinely into account. If you want to be less cynical, for instance, take five minutes every day to write down or just think about things that you can be grateful for, that kind of thing. It turns out small changes go a long way. Simply taking off your shoes may be enough. Another, in a way, more practical symbolic element to be found in Moses' taking his shoes off is in the fact that when you walk without shoes, you literally walk differently. And that obviously has a 
wonderful uh, symbolic uh, quality to it. Um, you walk differently in the world. At a more abstract level, you differentiate yourself. Shoes can be symbolic of culture and custom and assimilation and mediocrity and habit and death and ideology and bondage and so on. And taking those shoes off then symbolizes the opposite, stepping away from the conventional, working against the ideological status quo, figuring out a better way to be and to live. I also like thinking of this moment of encounter with God in terms of a meeting that produces action. God says, hello, and then informs Moses immediately that there is something that he can do. The ground is holy, God explains, which is really a fancy way of saying, this is the place of encounter with the divine. That, by the way, is what holy means. The holy is the space made for divinity within creation, within the imminent order. Think of the holy of holies in the temple. Uh, the historian Tacitus records how Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, who had a very cool name, back in uh, 63 AD, discovered that the Holy of Holies was untenanted and empty. The Holy of Holies was, of course, deeply revered and was even a place that evoked fear in the kind of moral imaginations of, of the Israelites. So, of course, the materialist reading of this would be, see, there's nothing behind the curtain after all. There is no God. But that is missing the point. The holy is always a space of emptiness, of, in a way, silence and expectation, since that is what is needed to allow the divine presence to be known and felt within the imminent order. Meditation, for instance, is for holiness, since it concerns creating space for divine encounter. In fact, anything that allows for such a space is holy. Holiness requires taking off your shoes, that is, putting away anything that will try to fill up the space with something that is not God. So Moses takes off his shoes, and then God tells Moses what the agenda is. He does this first by giving Moses some context, which is a really good principle for any form of communication or storytelling. God tells Moses that he is the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is, in other words, foremost a God of people and not a God of ideas or theories or deconstructionist abstractions. He is concerned with history and tradition since the people he names are dead and yet they speak. God's presence is focused primarily on the human story and the human experience. He is also a God who knows people intimately. This is a remarkable thing that we shouldn't forget, since I think, you know, when you look at the history of religious ideas, you find that this idea of a personal divinity, a personal source of all being, as, as the kind of core uh, center of the religious experience. It's a new idea in human history. The divine sense of reality is always personal. Because God takes things personally, and because he has a history with the children of Abraham, he expresses a deep concern for what they are enduring. Pharaoh may be deaf, blind, and stupid, but this God has heard, seen, and known the suffering of his people. Just as Moses has already done in saving that Hebrew slave from that Egyptian taskmaster, so God sides with the Hebrew slaves and 
opposes their taskmasters. Also, because he is on the side of the Hebrews, he has a plan. And that plan involves deliverance. So Moses has an encounter with God, and we are not yet done looking at that encounter. And in any case, what we have learned so far is not even a complete picture of the nature of the divine. But Moses' encounter still reveals a few key things. God is personal. He cares about history and its processes and outcomes. He cares about what we do in response to him. He wants to be known, and he doesn't like slavery. In fact, he hates slavery. He will end it, but he wants us to be involved. He wants our own slavery to end so that we can participate in the redemption of others and the world. There is a lot more to be said along these lines, of course, because God doesn't just tell Moses what to do. He actually has a conversation with him. But I will say much more about that in the next episode. Thank you very much for joining me on this journey. I hope you are finding it illuminating in some way. Uh, Until next time, take care of yourself, everyone. Cheers. Cheers.